Hello and welcome to the Data Busters podcast, the podcast for all things school data. It's here. Yes, our new book, Data Proof Your School, is out now. And it's shot to number one in the bestseller list. Number one in the none more niche school examinations and assessment category, admittedly, but a bestseller nonetheless. And what better time to publish a book than that time of year when the long evenings lend themselves to pulling up a chair and considering how best to take control of your data. Of course, the daylight hours are still taken up with managing the ongoing challenges of life in the time of COVID, and schools are working hard to find some normality in these strange days. This month, we're looking at who's in and who's out in 2022's Key Stage 2 assessments and giving you an insight into our guide to data-proofing your school. I'm Richard Selfridge, author of Data Busting for Schools, and joining me as always is Jamie Pembroke, data buster extraordinaire, insight facilitator, and all-round data guru. Hello, Jamie. How are you getting on today? I'm all right. Thank you very much. Yes, Excellent. I'm okay. Yeah, good, good. Still working at home. Oh, aren't we all exactly? Yeah, I'm in and out of schools at the moment. Every single podcast. <laughs> yeah, I am in and out of schools. So I'm, I do some teaching um, and I'm working with various schools. And it depends. It really is such a, it's a varied landscape. Some people will happily have you in school. Other people yeah. are, you know, because of their situation, they're not able to invite you into school. Um, but you, we've got the data busting event we're doing in Norwich soon. And which, yeah. which again, we had various discussions as to whether that should continue. But we are going to yeah. continue and do it. So I think yeah. that's kind of the nature of the thing at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm not really going into schools much, um, if at all. So I'm doing everything by pretty much everything by Zoom, which is fine. Um, that's with senior leaders or with governors or whatever. It's pretty much all on Zoom. Uh, but we had our data busting day down in uh, Bristol, which was well attended and well received, I think. So that's mm. very good. And we're doing another one, as you say, in Norwich next Friday, uh, which was off and then it was on again. So um, looks like. Yep, exactly taking place exactly and if you're listening in and if you're in anywhere near norwich or can travel to norwich we'll be there on um friday the 4th of february um and we'll put a link in the show notes if you do want to come along because again and we'll be talking about a number of the things which we've been talking about generally um in the data busters podcast but again looking to help people um data proof their school which is largely what we've been doing Indeed. um a couple of things to pick up on so so last time month we had a fascinating discussion with tom richmond mm. talking about um how things might change and as we move move forward and again i i'm really interested to hear various responses to the idea that we just need to get um um, we need to take some of the heat out of assessment um, and begin to think about using it sensibly. Again, yeah. I've seen some response to, to um, that report, and it's going to be interesting to see now that we've got new edu- newish education secretary um, uh, and potentially, you know, um, shadow education secretaries who are looking for ideas. Let's see what they work with that. Well, um, I wrote a blog uh, that ten things I still hate about data. The reason why I call it still hate about data because I wrote one years ago called Ten Things I Hate About Data, and overwhelmingly there's still things I hate about data. So some <laughs> things are new. Um, some things have changed a bit. It's still mostly you know, sort of around uh, the use of teacher assessment um, to to hold schools to account, which is just bonkers. Um, pro- dodgy, you know, sort of the whole issues around progress measures and that sort of thing. So uh, that report addressed a lot of the issues. As you say, it takes the heat out. Um, it lowers the stakes. It makes the um, the assessment so much less intrusive, I think. Mm. 
that you can just manage it so much easier within sort of normal school time and uh, normal sort of classroom practice. It can be done pretty easily. And uh, the more I think about it, the more I like um, like it. And I mentioned that in um, in that blog post. I think it's a I think it's a great idea. And other countries are doing it. And if it's running in other countries, including Wales, uh, which is obviously not very far away from me, um, why not here? Why couldn't we do that here? Yeah, no, exactly. And it's good to see that report. Um, and there was another report at the um, back end ish of last year, ASCAL Association of School and College Leaders. They um, mm-hmm. did a report called A Great Education for Every Child. Again, I'll put that in the show notes, which again is thinking about, you know, how do we improve their education system? So it's really good to see that people are thinking about these things and thinking about it at primary as well, because, again, there's been lots of thought around GCSEs, but not so much about primary. Yeah, so yeah. That's all really good to see. Speaking of primary, um, one of the things we do want to talk about is that uh, um, we're heading towards Key Station two sats this year mm. and there's always a discussion about who's in and who's out and i know that you get there is a number yeah. of uh, requests on this so what's what's the latest with that right so i've had my first email of the year now obviously this has all been paused for the last couple of years apart from phonics which was pushed into the autumn but phonics that never stops but <laughs> nothing um, will stop phonics <laughs> nothing key stage two gcse's a levels ah, we don't need it but phonics no no no, no. so we, we talked about that so um uh, key stage two tests back on, key stage one assessments back on. So it looks like these things are going to take place at the moment. I suspect they will. Uh, and there will they, they've, they've confirmed that there won't be uh, any published performance tables this year for primary schools, but there will be for secondary schools. And, and I think we've mentioned this previously as well. Uh, but there will be accountability data, accountability um, results, uh, if you like, in ASP for schools to download. And no doubt in the inspection data summary report, finally, which will be published in you know, the autumn, which Ofsted will use. So schools are now back to thinking about that. Who's in, who's out, who's included, who's not. And I started writing a blog post and I saw about halfway through it. And you realize what just an absolutely enormous rabbit hole this still is. And I and I understand. So this teacher, head teacher emails me and says, if these is the, they're always along this sort of theme of. If these children sit this test, what impact will it have on my headline scores or my percentages? Will they be included? Will they not? So there are three sort of parts to this, I realise. There's who should and shouldn't take tests, who's included in attainment, and who's included in progress. So I just wanted to say, like, in terms of who should and shouldn't sit tests, there's a major point of confusion here. So I'm just going to read something out. So the assessment reporting arrangement states that the pupils should not take tests if any of the following apply. Point one, they have not completed the relevant key stage two program of study. I'm going to come back to that because that's the point of confusion. Point two, they are working at pre-key stage standards or being assessed using the engagement models. That's below the standards of the pre-key stage. So they are below or below below. Um, they won't be sitting tests, obviously. Um, or they are working at the standard of the key stage two test, but are unable to participate even when suitable access arrangements have been made. So that final one is about, you know, children who are unable to sit the test, maybe for uh, some accessibility issue. It could be a disability or something like that. So there are those who are below and therefore they won't be taking the test. And below, they mean pre-key stage. And then there are those who can't access the test. They may be working within the standards of the key stage, right? but they can't access the test for whatever reason. Um, but it's that first point about, let me just read that one again, because it is confusing. They have not completed the relevant key stage two program of study, right? So if you imagine you've got a child in year six who's working, broadly speaking, it's a year four kind of standard. They're still yeah, two years behind their peers. You think, 
Well, they haven't completed the Key Stage 2 programme of study, have they? But that's not really what it means. What they actually mean are children that have been held back a year. They're out of year group. Um, That's what it actually means. And if you read more into it, then that becomes clear. I think I've got something here that says the the ARA explains that the tests are designed for people who have completed the key stage two program of study. So again, you think, well, this child's working in year four kind of work content. So they haven't completed the key stage two program of study. And then it says, and are working at the overall standard of the testing. Well, that's debatable because they're working in year four. This means that if pupils are working above the pre-key stage standards, they should be entered for the tests. Okay. So that's really confusing. Well, anyone who's not who's working above pre-key stage, mm. right? yeah. anyone who's not who's working above pre-key stage, as it says, should sit the test. Well, that means therefore this child who's working in broadly kind of accessing the year four curriculum, they're above pre-key stage mm. because they're working within key stage two content, but they haven't completed the key stage two program of study. That's not really what it means. What it means is it's, it's about those children that have been held yeah. back a year or who started reception later because they might be summer born or something like that. And they are rare cases because otherwise, if it was all about those children who are working a year behind or two years behind, who have some special educational needs, there will be a sizable group of children who don't sit tests. And it does make quite clear in the ARA that if children can access the test and they are working above pre-key stage, and they can answer some questions, then they should do the test. Mm. Otherwise, you wouldn't get any children kind of scoring like 80 or 90, mm. would you? You just get all these The only children that can sit the test are those children who are going to meet the expected standard. And that's obviously not the case. Uh, so I think it is, I, that's my interpretation. It's still really confusing, but I think it's about those very rare cases. So basically most children are going to sit tests. There will be some children who don't because they have access issues or are pre-key stage um, or have been held back a year. So they will be sitting in the following year and those children get this F code. Um, they will sit the tests in the future. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. a, that's, a, that's a big one. Which, yeah, exactly, which never really happens, obviously. We talked about that previously. Well, yeah, yeah, we have talked about that previously. Mm-hmm. So there are children that are getting mm-hmm. coded with F codes, apparently, mm-hmm. allegedly, uh, children who have been coded with F codes who um, are then removed from, because the thing about an F code is it's basically telling the DFE, this child will sit the test next year. And you go, okay, in that case, we'll remove them from attainment and from progress. This is the only way pretty much to get a child removed from all measures. Because remember that if a child is pre-key stage and doesn't sit the test, they're counted as having not met the expected standards. In the vast majority of cases, children are included in your threshold measures, in your attainment. It is really, really, really difficult to get children removed from percentages achieving expected standards getting a child removed from, from attainment is really difficult the main group of children that are removed from attainment are those children who have arrived from overseas within the last two years who uh, for whom english is an additional language and have come from um a non-english speaking country you know so there are various rules around this that they have to um uh, conform to that, that that means that right so they won't be included and they can't be included in progress measures anyway because they haven't got a key stage one result Okay, so they're not included. That's the main group of children. And they are initially included, but you remove them through the checking exercise. So you get you download your checking data in September or whenever, you know, when it opens at the end of the summer and some holidays and you look through it and go, well, they shouldn't be included. They've been included as not achieving, not achieving. And, And it's actually up to you, because obviously, if they did achieve it, they sat the test and they did achieve it, despite having arrived from overseas in the last two years, blah, blah, blah. And they did achieve it. You're not going to remove them, are you? Yeah. You're going to keep them in. 
So, if they, but if they don't achieve, you have this um, that you have this opportunity to remove them. And then the only other children that are not included in attainment are those with F and P codes. Hmm. The F code means we'll sit this test in the future because they've been held back a year. And the P code is have sat the test in the past. Think, well, is there is there a group of children who take key stage too early? I'd, Schrodinger's children, <laughs> they're both doing well, it in I the past and in the there future. Are, there, there might be like, so for example, there'll be French children who will sit their GCSE in French or Russian children who will sit their GCSE in Russian a year early. Mm-hmm. It's quite a few children. That, that's GCSEs mm. and language speakers. Are there really children who mm. reach the end of key stage two having already done the key stage two test? I don't know. But anyway, Curious. so there you go. Exactly. Uh, so, but it sounds like, so again, if you're going to write that blog, um, uh, have a look out for that, everybody, because again, it's, it's not an easy um, thing to, to track, but uh, I'm glad that you're and, doing and it. I have to say, really... that's, that's, that, we haven't even got onto the progress measures thing. <laughs> that is the real yeah, uh, exactly. minefield, is yeah. the progress measures. So I'll, go, I'll write the blog and, and, and hopefully we'll make some sense of that. And I know that we've covered this before and I've covered mm. it in blogs before and I've done it in talks and stuff. And I keep talking about it because it keeps sort of changing. Yeah, well, it's, it's a live thing, a exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, good definitely. stuff. Fun times. I know, exactly. Now, we're also extremely pleased that finally that our book, Data Proof Your School, is now available um, and, uh, on, in all good bookstores, as they say. Um, yeah. So we thought we'd just give you a bit of an overview of our vision for a, for a data proof school, what we mean by that. Um, uh, and we were looking at um, the best way to, to summarize this to you. So I think in this first instance, we think we're just going to give you a bit of a chapter by chapter summary um, to introduce uh, you to the book. So yeah. um, the book's got nine chapters altogether. Um, it starts off with an introduction. Um, and that introduction, again, is just basically an introduction about using data in school. Um, uh, and it's got just a, an overview as to kind of where we are at the moment. Um, and one of our big suggestions is that, um, is that you think about using data strategically, which means that it kind of underpins lots of things. Schools obviously work in a very policy orientated framework and schools tend to have loads of policies about stuff. But actually something like data use um, sits underneath lots of things. So we really have talk about um, just thinking about things strategically so that you're, you're making plans over a number of years. And then we, we give you a really good overview of why you should data proof your school, which is largely so that you can take control of what's actually happening in your school and that you're moving things forward. And that's there because chapter two is a license for change, change James, isn't it? Where we're saying, yeah. 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 Yes. So um, that chapter, chapter two, license, license to change, uh, is talking about the issues that we've had historically where data was really collected for... Uh, that sort of internal tracking data we're talking about. I mean, obviously, it's statutory data you don't have much control over, but internal data you did. But generally speaking, schools were collecting that to keep uh, various agencies happy. Your, your school improvement partner, your governors, and obviously Ofsted, maybe the local authority. Over. You collected data just to keep. So it's like kind of keeping the wolf from the door kind of data. And, um, and we tracked progress in a particular way. And obviously, we've talked about sort of levels and breaking down levels and counting how many steps of learning and all this kind of magical stuff that schools did that didn't really mean much. Um, and now schools are sort of moving away from that and have been for the last few years. Um, and that chapter is about why you can, you, you absolutely have license to ditch those kind of old practices and create a system that is far more simple uh, more proportionate, has less workload, but is uh, uh, more meaningful 
um, and uh, is, is not kind of accountability, progress measuring focused. It's mm. more about, um, yeah, very sort of simple representation of standards, what data is going to be informative, what data isn't, and why all these organizations, including Ofsted, through their sort of myth busting statements in the, in the handbook, um, we reference like speeches made by Amanda Spielman, um, DFE workload, you know, the reviews into workload, all these things, the assessment commission, mm. commission on assessment about levels, uh, all these kind of reports, the making data work report that have come out saying, you don't need to do this anymore. You actually do not need to do this anymore. You shouldn't be doing this anymore. So yeah, mm. that's what that chapter is about. Exactly. That license to change and saying, not only have you got a license to change, you know, it's incumbent on you as a school, as an organization to take control of it, you know, and to, to take these new opportunities and, and say, as we style it, to become a data proof school. Um, yeah. We talk, um, the third chapter is, is about, uh, about high quality data and about, you know, generating, collecting high, high quality data and making sure that the information which you're collecting is worth collecting, that is going to, you, is going to tell you something and that you're going to do something with it, but making sure that it's, it's as good as it can be. Um, and we talk about um, contextual data and, and uh, attainment data, uh, and we really look into you know, the, the contextual data which w is useful for you um, and the things which will um, support you in making decisions for the actions that you're going to take. Um, we talk about um, generating high-quality assessment data, which, again, is one of those things that you and I have been banging on for a long time about the quality of assessment data. A huge mm. amount of assessment data yep. in schools yep. has been Goldilocks data. It's been people, you know, colouring things different colours or putting things in different pots um, in a way. You know, that whole thing that you talk about mm. where, you know, I put some information into a database, I turn away, I look back at it. Oh, what did it tell me? What I put into it. So, yeah. You know, there's all kinds of issues. And we talk about, you know, so, so if you are going to generate um, particularly an assessment data, how do you how do you do that? Um, and largely we come down to, um, you know, you if you're going to have um, assessments or written assessments, if you can, you should be using standardized assessments and you shouldn't be doing them too often. Um, we also think about grouping pupils based on the data you generate. And this isn't about um, the, the, the groups which we've been obsessed by over the whole time of diminishing the difference and all the rest of the, um, yeah, those yeah. Uh, things. We, we talk about, or well, what are you actually going to do that's going to make a difference? And we, we talk about the fact that you really should be identifying the pupils who are getting on with school. We talk about them being in school, um, in class, focused and learning. Um, and the, for a lot of pupils, they, they're just doing the right thing. They're getting on yeah. fine. But for those yeah. people who, who, are, who are not doing so well, not doing fine, you know, you've got to make changes for them. But you've got to identify them first and you've got to yeah. identify them clearly to say, actually, these people need additional support um, yeah. uh, and where we can. So in that, we really, in that chapter, we really think about, I say, high quality data, which leads us on to chapter four, which is standardized assessments. And I love the way she'd done this one because yeah. the questions just come up all the time about these, don't they? Yeah, yeah. So uh, I get asked questions about standardized tests all the time, and there are misconceptions about standardized tests. So um, a standardized test doesn't necessarily generate standardized scores. I mean, if, if every child sits the same set of uh, questions at the end of a term, for example, um, you have standardized a test because they're all attempting the same questions. Although there are cases where a standardized test does not involve all children attempting the same questions, and we cover that as well. So adaptive tests, for example, where the, the answers children, the, the questions children get asked depend on the answers they previously gave, the, 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 they adapt. So that chapter is laid out in a series of questions, the sort of questions that we get asked quite a lot. Uh, what is a standardized test? 
what is a standardized score? How is a standardized score um, calculated? What is the difference in a standardized score and a scaled score? And by scaled score, you know, in some cases, we're talking about some kind of proprietary scale that a test provider has come up with. Um, but actually, in that case, I'm talking about key stage two scaled scores, which we're all very familiar with, but look very similar. And we've talked about before, but are actually very different to norm referenced um, uh, standardized scores. Talk about what is norm referencing. Um, so how are these scores sort of calculated? What other types of data do we get from standardized tests? So that will include things like percentile ranks, stay nines, um, and age equivalent scores, like reading ages, that sort of thing. Can we use these scores to measure progress? What are the issues around using scores to measure progress? Can we use standardized tests for the youngest children? Are they suitable for baselining children? Um, what sort of subjects do they uh, cover? So um, what are adaptive tests, as I mentioned? Um, uh, uh, can we use what sort of tests are available for children with special educational needs? And obviously, uh, SENCOs use many, uh, a variety of different um, uh, sort of diagnostic, standardized diagnostic tools for, for various children with, with uh, learning difficulties. So, yeah, it's, there's, I don't know, it's like 20 questions um, about standardized tests. And uh, hopefully that will... Um, uh, yeah, help sort of iron out some of the crease, some of the confusion um, around standardised assessment. Exactly, particularly because those are being used much, much more um, sort of pre-14 um, to yeah. in schools and in schools yeah. are beginning to think about how they use standardised assessment. And there's, you know, there's an understandable confusion for those people who haven't had too much yeah. assessment in them. So there's a whole um, chapter about standardised tests. Um, we've also got a chapter about teacher assessment, which is, again, as I, um, I'm fond of saying, you can't teach in England in particular um, without teacher assessment. You know, the whole yeah. system is, is based on you assessing all the time. But there are issues around um, teacher assessment. So we look at um, just, you know, how you use standardised tests to support teacher assessment. Um, and then we talk about, and this ends up being a bit phasey because um, mm. it's very different when you're assessing pupils who, who can't read as yet, you know, yeah. or, or are beginning to, um, yeah. to think about reading. You're, you're trying to assess children then. Once children can write um, and are emerging writers, sort of, you know, the early stages of primary school, then there are um, different ways that you can assess uh, pupils then. As, as children get a bit older, and once you can begin to write things down, then you can use um, teacher assessments in all kinds of ways. And we talk about, you know, just a number of different um, techniques that you can use, setting different tasks at different times or the same task at different times. Mm. Um, but again, thinking about, what, I say, once you got into written assessments, because pre-written assessments, you're having to do a lot of observational work, yeah. Um, and again, we talk about all of the issues around that, but um, it, it, you know, the, the problem that we all have with biases and just, you know, where you need to, yeah. to be aware of those and ways to, to manage those. And then we also talk about um, contextual factors, which again, teacher assessment, if you're going to assess contextual factors and those things like behavior and attitude, but also kind of um, medical, special educational needs. Um, and all those kinds of things. You're looking at those to try and see, or well, what can you know? How can we assess these best? And then we also need to think about, and everything needs to be aware. Just in terms of teacher assessment, how it's secured? Do you expect it to be? Do you want it to be? So there's a whole area there to to support um, those thinking about. Well, how do we how do we do these things that we don't have any standardized assessments for? Yeah. So yeah. that all leads on to then say, well, okay, so once we've got a really good sense of what we can and can't infer from assessments, what the benefits and the drawbacks and the, and the, mm. um, yeah. and so on, the positive and negatives. Um, now you've got, at that point, you know, everybody who's reading the book will have a really good understanding of, okay, so, okay, so it's a difficult prospect, but we can do it. Well, one of the things which we do say is you're grouping pupils and saying, okay, so you, there are going to be some pupils who are either side of the distribution. 
So we've done quite a big, we've called them outliers because they're outliers of the distribution. Um, yeah. And that's an interesting chapter to write, which we kind of both worked on that one, adding yeah. bits to it, didn't we? Mm. Yeah, so it, it, it does deal with those children at sort of uh, the two ends of the spectrum, really. I suppose there's the very high attainers and the lowest attainers. And, mm. and obviously we don't want to um, uh, conflate like low attainers with children with special educational needs. There is a big overlap there, but they're not necessarily the same group. That's really important to note. Um, but the, overwhelmingly, that chapter is about children with special educational needs um, and, and who are also lower attainers. Um, so, it, and the important thing is that often our assessment, we are uh, dealing with children who are accessing the curriculum are absolutely fine. And often we don't really need much more information about them. It's those children that are struggling in some way uh, or maybe need more challenge that we might need more information about. Uh, and that's what this, this chapter, this outline chapter is about. And it does go into detail about the sort of data that we might generate that might be useful uh, for those children that are working below um, age related expectations, if you like. And the sort of diagnostic tests and and um, and the sort of uh, yeah sort of standardised tests that we might use and other forms of assessment that we might use, but ultimately how it's really important that we don't just kind of group them all together and um, pretend that they are some kind of homogenous group that we can compare to national averages and track over time. That 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 the the focus should be on that sort of provision mapping on case by case. Um, that that the, the track should be on like case by case basis. Um, and that different children progress at different rates. And we all know this, but often we just kind of ignore it for the, for the sake of convenience because we not want this nice, neat tracking system that counts their progress in a kind of uniform way. But actually, they're not. They're not like that. They are all different and that we need it kind of kept separate. We need them. Uh, we need the information separated out. Um, and we need to know what sort of interventions that are being put in place for those children, what sort of support is being put in place to meet the needs of those children and how effective that is. So and we've got a contribution uh, from Natalie Packer in that um, mm. in that chapter, which is really good on provision mapping. Mm. Um, so a, a, a kind of a, a, an approach, an appropriate, good, you know, working yeah. approach to provision mapping. Uh, yeah, and that is, is so useful. essential. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning uh, Natalie because um, she's uh, contributed again, just to give you kind of real good case study um, information. A couple of people have contributed to the book and Andrew Percival's um, contributed to um, just the, the development that he had within his school, thinking about how do you develop your, your um, use of data. So we've got a, a yeah. few people in there. It's been really useful to, yeah. to have those in, haven't we? Because yeah. one of the things which we've also talked about is um, there's a chapter which we've got about how, how do you keep all this information together? Yes. Uh, we called it... Yeah. Uh, tracking systems, although I know that yeah. in, in there you've, you've made the case that we should be calling them assessment databases um, yeah. uh, because it's such a difficult thing because, because we, what we, want, we want people to move away from this sort of progress-focused uh, yes. approach to data to an action-focused, so we've, we've looked yeah. at saying, hmm. Yeah, so uh, everyone calls them tracking systems. That's yes. okay, you know, that's what they've always been called, but I think assessment hmm. database is a better term. Uh, hmm. Tracking systems, something about that word tracking that implies counting numbers over time and measuring progress. I think that's how we, uh, and that's historically, that's what they were used for. Whereas what yeah. we're arguing in this is that your assessment database tracking system uh, should be uh, a library of useful information. And for some children, you might be focusing more on and, and storing different types of data. It should be capable of storing any data in any format, which I am prone to say on a regular basis. Uh, and it, it should be adaptable, so you should be able to customize it so that 
if you want to store particular types of uh, information, then you, it should be easily able to do that. So if you want to put in, uh, obviously the results of standardized assessment and teacher assessments in the various formats from foundation stage up to year six and up to key stage three and up to yeah, GCSE, you should be able to put all that information in. Um, if you want to put in their phonics phase, uh, then you should be able to put that in information in. If you want to put something in there about like their, their stage of acquisition of uh, like uh, Braille, you know, that their, their skills in Braille, for example, a, I just picked that up because a school asked me about that quite recently, then you should be able to uh, put that in. Uh, language acquisition, the book bands they're on, the phonics phase they're at, um, various kind of standardized scores and scaled scores and rule scores and things and percentages and percentiles, you know, should be able to go into that system because the whole point, as you're always saying, uh, Richard, is that we're trying to build a picture of learning over time. And mm. it's like um, looking at a map, you know, you get that sort of small scale map, you, you get like not much detail and that mm. might be fine. You know, like a road atlas, that's fine for just yeah. road atlas anymore. But anyway, you take the point. Yeah. But, but if you want to uh, map a, a route across you know, mm. the Cairngorms, you need something far, far more detailed. So in some cases, a, a very broad sort of view is fine. And in many cases, it's fine. But sometimes we need a lot more detail and we need to zero in. And um, your, your tracking system uh, should enable you to do that. Exactly. So then you've got to really think about um, what, how you're going to store that data in, say, in, your, in your system, your assessment database and so on, because it yeah. helps you to build those pictures. That then moves on to, again, so this, all of those things hopefully should get you as a reader to the point of thinking, OK, so what are we doing? What might we do? How might we make these changes? And then you need to think about how you're going to how you are going to make those changes so we've got the the last two chapters of the book really help you with that so um there's a chapter on um developing a data strategy and uh, yep. the idea that you've got to take control of it it's going to take a while we've got 10 steps to creating uh, um, a data strategy and this is based on work that we've done with schools with um, uh, organizations with mats to say okay well if you are going to change what you're doing it's, it's, it's not going to happen quickly. You've got to make sure you involve everybody. You've got to get all the key stakeholders involved. You've got to take time to, to, to bed these things in. Um, you, you will find as you move forward that, that, that you know, it's, there's quite a lot that, uh, that has been using your previous unwritten data strategy. So now that you've taken control of that and you've, and you've actually um, written your own data strategy, you have to think about how that develops. So we've got a whole a chapter about that. And I say that just, it gives you a really, because that's what we've been asked for, how do I do, what should I do? And we basically say, this is step one, this is step yeah. two. And all yeah. of that will take you to the point where what we're looking for you to do is to, um, is to make sure that you're, you're, you're minimizing the effort and maximizing the outcome and then we run into the, the final chapter, which is data proofing and action and say, what does this actually look like? You know, if you've got a yeah. school where you've taken on board all of the things which we've looked at um, and how does that look? And that, uh, that's the chapter which I'm really looking forward to seeing when people get to that point and they're able to say, OK, I've gone through all the stuff. Yep. And now I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Just yes. you know, our philosophy for what you, you should be doing. Yeah. So it's just got examples of the way that you can um, collate and analyze and, and present data to audiences such as governors, for example, um, and, uh, uh, and to parents. Um, and, that, you know, I think I say in the book, like, you, you'd think that reporting to governors would warrant uh, a, a kind of chapter all of its own. And I think historically that was the case where vast amounts of data, like a whole raise report and all, all this was dumped on, a, on governors. And, and what we want is a, you know, a less is more approach. You, they don't need much information. They should be using some very broad level um, statistics 
uh, and then below that they should be really asking questions about the support that's provided for individual children that are that do have needs and barriers to learning and some there are some things that maybe data just can't inform that it requires a conversation narrative rather than numbers i think is the phrase we use um uh, we've uh, steve ellis has uh, contributed to that chapter and uh, talking about how they've massively reduced the uh, reporting arrangements to to parents so uh, that before they were you know doing quite lengthy reports and i think a lot of schools are still stuck in this rut of generating these massive reports and he's gone down this kind of report card approach where you know just you have the subjects you have like an effort grade some attainment yeah. grade and then an overall comment and that's sort of pretty much it mm. and uh, i think a lot of schools will be have been thinking about that or moving that direction and hopefully uh, again that license to, ch to change thing that they'll be taking heart from that thing we can do that too yeah and uh, steve is um uh chief exec of the cheshire academies trust yes um, and it's really useful to have that insight um you know one of the groups i've been working with i've been working with red kite um uh mm. learning trust and another matt um, uh, on a data strategy, and it, it, it's it's we're at the point now where we're, we're in the first year of uh, of them getting data in, and the power of being able to look at data that's common across schools, mm. um, so that you can see where the needs are, where you know in classes, in cohorts, uh, in schools, um, those schools who've got greater need, and it, can, it, it it's amazing when you get to the point where you've got common data that works really well and it's high quality, um, and you can focus in on the actions that you're working on. Um, it just brings this clarity to what you're doing which is what a data-proof school is. You've got a real clarity. So we're, we're gathering the data for a reason and we're going to do something with it. We're not just putting it in a spreadsheet just in case the wolves turn up and ask us about it. Yeah. So, yeah, so all of those bring together data-proofing your school. I mean, that's a very much an overview of the different parts of it. Um, it's been really good to get out and talk to people about it. And I say we're out in Norwich next week and we'll be doing more over the, uh, the coming year um, just to uh, say, just to give people just that overview of, of uh, the, the, all of the things which we've learned, talking to schools, working with schools, putting these things into into uh, action, so that you can, uh, I say, you can make decisions and you can you, you've got that that license to change and you've taken it and move forward. So I'm really looking forward to seeing um, yeah. as people get copies of the physical copies and start to read it. And it's yeah, also available on Kindle as well for those people who want to read an electronic copy. So it'll be good to see that. Yeah, yeah. yeah so all of that again brings us, um, as I say, is. Uh, great but in summary then Jeremy how would you summarize a data-proof school what would, you, what would you be your summary for it um minimalist <laughs> excellent just I... just a focus on like the, the the reasons for generating data you know so yeah. that the reason for generating data is it should be telling you something it should not be oh because my governors want this or my local authority advisor has asked for this or whatever it should be proportionate um yeah. and it should be accurate yeah. Uh, and it, it, that's it, really. Um, mm. There should be a purpose to the data. Mm -hmm. I collect it for this reason, and it should be the right reason, which is to support teaching and learning. So it's those schools that have thought, we start from the classroom upwards. What do we need to generate in order to help our teachers support children's learning? And then anything else that we report to any other audience is a byproduct of that process. It is not done from the top down. It's done sort of more from the, the bottom up. Excellent. Um, and it's think... entirely proportionate with, you know, workload considered at all times. So, yeah.
Excellent, good stuff. Yep, absolutely. Uh, that sounds good. I, I, we, uh, Jamie and I, did we discussed having um, single word chapter titles. You were that minimalist about the whole thing. Let's just get it oh, down yeah, to the yeah, key yeah. things. Exactly. Um, <laughs> we didn't in the end, but it's there. No. But anyway, but uh, so any, if you've got any responses to it and you want to let us know, then we'd love to hear what you hear, um, what your views on the book. Anything you think we sh- we should, you know, we should um, add because I say we can put things onto the um, data proofing your school data proofing for schools website. If there's any additional things that you've got, and if you've got any case studies yourself as well, if you if you want to chip to it chip into anything we'd love to hear from you and, and if you would like to uh, like us to do a data busting day then we can Absolutely. do that as well yeah no get in yeah. touch that'll be fantastic yeah i think we should probably stop there i think we've got enough to go with so i'm going to stop recording so we have to turn on zoom again So there you have it. The Data Busters podcast is published monthly during the academic year and is available on all good podcast outlets. And if you like what we're doing, please do recommend us to others. If you've got any questions, feel free to send in a voice recording or to contact us on Twitter, either at databusting or at jpembroke. If you'd like us to put on a data busting day near you, please get in touch and we'll see what we can do. And don't forget to order your copy of Data Proof Your School. Until next time, we hope our discussions have helped you to decide what you're going to do next. Best of luck and keep data busting.